Hello, and thank you for joining iPads and Politics. My name is Ben Korn. I'm the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And as always, I am joined at the table by Andre Porter. Hey, how are you doing? And Daniel Pham. Hello. This week, there are uh, a variety of things that we wanted to talk to you about. We're going to discuss a little bit about um, congressional hearings on sexual harassment and misconduct in the scientific laboratory setting. Uh, we're going to get an, on, an update from Andre on the White House's uh, year one highlights in science and technology. I have an exciting interview with Emily Halubowicz, the executive director for the Coalition for Health Funding, where we discuss budget and appropriations updates and processes. Um, you're going to want to stick around and hear that. And at the end of the session, we're going to be talking about our month of March advocacy opportunities. So um, stick around. I think this is going to be an interesting episode. So the first thing I wanted to get into um, oh, uh, if you're interested in anything, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. At, at ASBNB is our the society's Twitter handle. I am at BWCorb. Andre is? At AMPorter underscore. And Daniel is? At DFAM20. And the hashtag is Pipettes and Politics. So uh, we really encourage you to go on there, follow us, uh, engage with us, have a conversation there, um, keep the podcast alive and going beyond this recording. Um Daniel, the first thing we want to talk about, hearing. The House Science and Technology Committee held a hearing on um, on what? So Barbara Comstock started the hearing um, describing the terrible situation in which your mentor actually turns out to be a sexual predator um, whose actions are then protected by the university. Um, and, you know, while this sounds crazy, it has happened very often. And she's, you know, talking about how sexual harassment has had a negative impact on women staying in STEM fields and wondering how many talented men and women have been lost uh, because of sexual harassment. Um, uh, Representative Lipinski cited that female scientists have a one in three chance of being harassed in the workplace, and that surveys from the postdoc association said that 35% of postdocs have experienced sexual harassment. So this is a very rampant situation. Uh, One thing that came out of the um, hearing was um, uh, so Rhonda Davis, the head of office, head of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the National Science Foundation, has made um, commitments to ensuring that sexual harassment uh, complaints are dealt with seriously and are taking um, and are ensuring that universities themselves are also um, taking these complaints seriously. That. The NSF is threatening to cut funding from institutions that don't comply to new NSF sexual harassment policies. Um, One of the interesting points that was brought up by um, Dr. Catherine Clancy, an associate professor at the University of Illinois, is that, you know, there's a lot of these um, uh, types of behaviors that we see about Harvey Weinstein um, that are these these sexual come-ons. However, there's still a disconnect to what we consider to be actionable offenses such as um, offensive remarks, subtle exclusions, you know, requests to make coffee or to um, type minutes um, and starting rumors. So how do we um, kind of ensure that these don't happen uh, any longer? So there, there, there were a lot of interesting um, comments and suggestions that um, hopefully will be implemented not only in the, at the NSF but other federal agencies, but also um, in... Um, Congress itself too. So I don't know if they brought this up in the hearing. So I'm sorry to put you on the spot. But did they talk about like what percentage of the workforce is uh, female? 
you know, did it, did that come up at all? Anybody know the numbers? No, on that? they didn't. There, <clears throat> it d- it's discipline dependent, of course. Mm-hmm. Certain disciplines have more women. I guess I mean life sciences, like the space that we live in. No, the they didn't. But life sciences, I feel like, and I, this, I could be misremembering, are largely more female than men. Yeah, it's like more balanced, I think, right. than like a t- than other, like computer science of harder, or harder sciences, engineering or whatnot. Yeah, they, they did mention that only. 23% of women end up staying in the STEM fields. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question is how much of this loss is caused by sexual harassment? And the, the answer is probably like a, a pretty significant amount. Right. Um, and it, again, it's not just by this um, broad, um, bold, like sexual harassment, but by these small, what they call um, put downs. Yeah. So, that, you know, daily actions that really belittle the work that are done by, by women and, and men also. Right. There was a story that somebody brought up about uh, an advisor throwing rocks at the person while they were, while they were working in the, the field and Jeez. pushing them down the uh, mountain. And this yeah. very I, shocking. Like pushing thing. them down a literal mountain? A literal yeah. mountain. Okay. Well, that wasn't like a metaphor. <laughs> no, like no, a no it was, it was okay. an actual thing. Well, I mean, and I think, if, if I remember correctly, I think A Today has done some writing on um, like being a mom in the yeah. in the lab, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of what that means and what the policies are like for that. And we'll try to link to that in our blog piece that adjoins um, this podcast. Uh, but it's it's really important work. You know, it's the extension of the Me Too movement into kind of uh, the, the workforce and into science and into the impact that it's had. And so I think it's really important that um, Congresswoman Comstock started, you know, did this hearing and began the discussion. Um, Andre, I think you were going to say that the NSF has an RFI. Right. So case. last month they released a notice about their new sexual harassment policy. That's it's, it's really an extension to their scientific misconduct policy. They this week they released an RFI soliciting the community for um, input on how this policy should look. So what type of reporting standards should be required? What type of um, things should they be looking for? Um, and I believe that policy will be. It's out now, but it closes in May. So, yeah. So let's put we'll put a link to that as right. well. And so, if you're interested in kind of having your voice be a part of the discussion, uh, we encourage you to go ahead and throw that stuff in there. Um, really important. I, I think it's really important. And and the misconduct issue, you know, I've seen it with um, society meetings. You know, nat- mm-hmm. annual meetings that are coming up. A, a lot of groups are being sure to have a very clear statement on misconduct and what that what's considered misconduct and appropriate behavior in a meeting environment. Um, I know the AAAS, uh, you know, I remember them tweeting out about it before their Austin meeting last uh, last month. So um, I, I think it's something that people are more aware of now, which is right. certainly worthwhile. And a, as a <clears throat> addition to that, the NSF is, has created a separate website where anybody at the university can report it. So you don't have to go through the chain okay. of, um, of power, so to speak, to report it. If you're a student and you see something happen, if you are the person being harassed, if you're just somebody um, sitting in the back of the classroom and see something going on, anybody can uh, report on it and the NSF will um, investigate. And Andre, do you happen to know the website for people who might want to report or see that? Yes. So you can go to nsf.gov backslash harassment and there are, on that page is updates on the policy as well as an email that anybody can use to report any issues that they're observing. Great. And that's nsf.gov slash harassment. And we'll also put a link to it for those of you that are on the web. Just a quick question for both. Um, is is the NIH like as active in the space as the NSF is? We've been very NSF focused mm-hmm. that hearing, this discussion. 
So the NIHs, they've had a policy that they're revamping that they're and they're running through their process. I'm not sure when it the last notice that I saw on that policy change just mentioned that it was running through their review process and then it's probably gonna be posted on the Federal Register in a month or so. Okay. So they are working in that space as well. And they've <clears throat> both agencies have had stuff, just not something that was so explicit and like written yeah. out this is how you handle it. So right. and I, I think yeah. the fact that, that um Congresswoman uh, Comstock held the hearing puts a brighter spotlight on the NSF because right. they're yeah. calling attention to it. Um, great. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Daniel. Really in interesting stuff, and thank you for going to that hearing. Um, the next uh, news uh, that we that we got, this came out this week. The um, uh, EOP, the Executive Office of the President, published their science and technology highlights in the first year of the Trump administration. This is um, a 12-page document, so if you're interested in it, we will have a link to it so that you can uh, download it. It is actually a 10-page document with two pages of footnotes and two yeah. pages of introduction. It's, it's an eight-page document. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, Andre, do you have any initial... I certainly have a couple of thoughts that I'd like to highlight. Andre, do you have any initial thoughts? Have you digested um, the wonderfulness that um, has been <clears throat> the first year in science and technology under President Trump? I've digested it. Mm -hmm. um, I feel... I still feel hungry. Okay. I feel like I'm... <laughs> you want more? I'm missing a meal. <laughs> <laughs> it is... I hate to be the guy to say, to be fair. Um, but to be fair, uh, no. <laughs> he's doing exactly what presidents do. Yes. Which is take credit for what the government is doing. This is true. And it's his government. It's his... Well, it's not his... Yes. For, yes. However, the assertions made in this document are... It's taking credit for things that were invested in before, which I generally have a problem with when we talk about Nobel Prizes in general, because mm -hmm. an agency will pop up and say, we gave this person funding, how, but that was 40 years ago. So it, right. So to, to the example <clears throat> I think so that Andre is pointing out is if I go under the category of scientific discovery, um, the, the report highlights that um, this administration has been supporting Nobel Prize worthy research, um, which is not untrue. It's not true. It's, it, it, it's not untrue. It's, it's entirely true that they have been supporting Nobel's prize-worthy research. It is also true that it, every president has been supporting right. Nobel Prize. Right, because right. as long as government is helping fund research, then they're supporting somebody, a future potential Nobel Prize winner. Right. So that's let's call that a stretch. Right? Oh, that, a stretch? There are tons <laughs> of stretches. We're <laughs> labeling stretches. Okay. There are a ton of stretches. Um, as oh. could be expected, it's very tech-heavy. It's very technology and communication heavy. Um, yes, yes. If you're looking for a lot of basic research, um, it's hard science stuff in here. It's, you're not going to see it. it. It's not the, it's not the the annual OSTP or President's uh, Science and Technology Priorities document that comes out every year. Right. This is kind of a look how great we're doing type of thing. Right, right. And what did the director of OSTP say about this particular report? Absolutely nothing because there is no director of uh, OSTP. <laughs> that is true. And um, how many times was science referenced in the President's State of the Union address um, in, in January or February? Not once? Not once, that's correct. Mm. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it, it is... Um, uh, Andre's right. Presidents are going to take credit for work that's happening in their administrations, and so that is all very true. And there are certainly some areas that the president, this president, is more focused on than others. Um, for our community, 
um, under biomedical innovation, just to go through approving novel innovative medical drugs and treatments um, is a highlight for year one. Streamlining uh, biomedical grant processes and research sharing at HHS, specifically uh, in NIAD, in the Infectious right. Disease Institute. Um, streamlining, streamlining digital health product oversight um, and uh, improving the usability of health information technology, health IT. So those were the areas in kind of the our, the life science space that they highlight in here. Um, I did want to point out, um, and this I find interesting, um, in the foreword of the document, um, the, the report states, I'm going to just quote it, read it right here from it. President Trump demonstrated his commitment to the importance of federal scientific ex exploration by requesting $151.2 billion for federal research and development investment in the FY 2018 budget, a 2% increase over FY 2017. Um, not true. Uh, I think we're going to we're gonna do that. I know uh, we, uh, I actually just got off the phone having a conversation with Pipettes and Politics alumni. Um, <laughs> uh, Matt Hurahan, the AAAS uh, Research and Development Budget Expert, um, he's actually writing a piece that we're going to link in here that gives the explanation. Um, by any, save for the one circumstance in which they're using as a baseline to make this case, um, by any way that a normal person, a normal science advocate, um, you all that are listening, would look at these numbers, there is no way that you could actually claim for real disease um, that the budget was increased by 2%. In fact, there were historic slices to basic and applied research in the president's budget. Um, there were increases in um, the kind of uh, the translational, more in the development, um, the research side, light, to be sure. Right. Yeah. And probably increases in um, defense funding, defense R&D. Yeah, we have it. This is uh, this report is fairly hot off the presses for us. Although we did get a we did get a hint when we met with White House officials last week that this was coming. Um, so it is an interesting read, right? Uh, do we have anything? You yeah, know? It's not that interesting. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's it's. I want to say it's what to be expected from the administration because it's heavy on boasting, light on particulars and and actual substance. I mean, um, they, they, didn't, they also failed to mention the fact that a lot of the science advisory councils and boards to the president have been dismantled. You know, a lot of appointments to science agencies have not been done. To um, be fair, they point out that there have been 50 people hired in the office of over, science and technology. Over 50. <laughs> From, you know, from 300 during the Obama administration. Right, but this, I, and this is... Redundancies and efficiencies. <laughs> redundancies and inefficiencies, but it is... I mean, there's been tons of articles written about the lack of a science advisor and OSTP director, and if the idea is to release this document to show that we're doing amazing things for science and research and basic science, then I think they, I think it's fair to say they missed they miss the mark by a lot. Um, I mean, everybody can read it, people listening can read it, but if you look at, if you just read the quotes... <laughs> then you get a good idea what the actual document is about. Yeah, and it's not really about <clears throat> basic science and kind no. of the research that we live in. Um, it's also, um, Andre and I had a meeting down at the White House last week, and we were led to believe that the release of this report was going to help put some of our fears at ease about how focused this president was and is on science, and um, uh, my fears have not been 
with the rest of no. yours? No, not at all. No. So um, <clears throat> maybe look for coverage on the blog on this. I think maybe we'll do a deeper dive. I um, mean, we're going to reach out to some folks. Um, so one of the, so a couple of those 50 people at OSTP that maybe got a couple of answers <laughs> to our questions on where this came up with. Um, that's all we wanted to do here. If you uh, stick with us after the break, uh, we're going to be joined by Emily Halubowicz as we're going to discuss um, uh, Congress, the, the mess that's going on there, the budget appropriations, um, how NIH funding might do, and um, all of that. What a really interesting stuff. This is Pipettes and Politics, and we'll be right back. Like this, but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy Blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. This is Ben Korb, and I am joined by my guest, Emily Halubowicz. Say hello. Hello, everyone. Emily is the executive director of the Coalition for Health Funding. She is also a founder of NDD United, which we've referenced in other podcasts. And your your title that actually pays you is what? You're a senior vice president? I am at, at CRD Associates in Washington, D.C. Wonderful. So um, I thought it would be great to have Emily on. Emily is... Um, for my money, um, the foremost expert on kind of the appropriations and budgetary policy things that are happen, happening, um, large scale, not just science. So we had Matt Hurahan on a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, and he's yeah. great on the science budget. Um, Emily can really talk about process of things. So um, what I wanted to do is jump into where we are, right? So a couple of weeks ago, or maybe now it's a month ago or somewhere in that time span, um, a budget deal passed Congress. So we had uh, the caps were raised. Congress has more money. We are under a continuing resolution for another couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. We need to figure out how to fund things, mm -hmm. and Emily's going to tell us how everything's going to roll out. So where are things right now? Well, first, Ben, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm excited to join you and your listeners um, to talk about where we are. Um, we're... It, well, where you stand depends on where you sit. Um, and for those of us who advocate for health funding, we're not in a great place. Um, I know you and I and others were jubilant for about 24 hours when we had the passage of the Bipartisan Budget Act that raised the caps, provided really the most new money for non-defense discretionary programs like research, like public health, um, since the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act now, um, almost a decade ago. Um, and we thought that would translate into a lot of new money for the programs and priorities we care about. Um, as you might expect, um, things are never as easy as they should be on Capitol Hill. Um, and right now, as we're kind of counting down, I think we're now um, about 15 days, working days, before the current CR expires. Um, and we're kind of at an impasse. Um, not on every spending bill, but on the spending bill you and I closely follow, and that's the Labor HHS Education Appropriations Bill, which provides funding for the National Institutes of Health, Centers for Disease Control, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and other programs at the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, 
And the issues are the same issues we usually have. Um, there are fights over how much money should go to the Labor HHS Education Subcommittee. There are fights about um, what we call policy riders um, that, um, as their name implies, are really kind of policy positions that, if tried to move on their own, would not be able to pass. And so we tack them into appropriations bills, um, hoping they go unnoticed, um, and are used as um, really policy levers to um, stop initiatives or prevent initiatives from going forward. And the debate around riders um, continues. And this is not unusual. This is sort of, as you know, Ben, you've been doing this a long time, Labor HHS Education Appropriations Bill is always among the most controversial. It is always a problem in part because of its size. It is the largest of the appropriations bills. Um, it also houses a lot of programs that tend to be politically tenuous, most notably um, Title X funding for family planning. Um, and that, as I understand it, is one of the major holdups Right so that's now. like that's like Planned Parenthood, correct? Right? Like like programs like that is what you'll find inside of the Title Ten. Correct. And so, um, Planned Parenthood itself is not like a federal program. They kind of make it sound like that in the news when you hear about it. Um, Planned Parenthood is a nonprofit organization that is um, a grantee of the federal government. So okay. Title Ten funding is housed within the Health Resources and Services Administration or HRSA. Um, and some of that money goes to Planned Parenthood, but it also goes to other providers um, of family planning and preventive services sure. out there. Um, so I'm going to, why doesn't, um, let's pretend like I don't know anything, and that's not a, hard to pretend. Um, the, the budget deal that we had a couple of weeks ago increased the caps. Why didn't Congress just proportionally distribute the new money amongst the appropriations bills and then to spend up from there, right? That would be the easy thing to do. That would be the easy thing to do. It would also be the sort of fair and equitable thing to do as you think about um, how to divvy up that money. That's also partly what the debate is about now. Um, so taking a step back, the Labor HHS Education Bill is the largest of the bills um, in the non-defense discretionary side. We like to refer to it as the People's Bill. The programs that are funded through Labor HHS Education really benefit all Americans, I think, across the board as you talk about you know, sort of the, the core functions of living being, you know, education, housing, and workforce health. and job right. training. And, and health. And, and right. health. Yeah. Um, sorry, I said housing. I don't know why. Um and partly, um, you know, as again, as we think about budgets, you know, it's a statement of priorities. And so we, you know, whenever there is money to be divided up across the subcommittees for appropriations, that's really at the discretion of the, the chairman of the appropriations committees. Um, the Republican appropriators tend to not favor the Labor H, um, HHS appropriations bill. Um, they like certain programs within it, notably uh, National Institutes of Health, but in, in general, on the whole, um, it's not their favorite bill. Um, as you might imagine, they tend to favor um, bills that house uh, programs and agencies that are more reflective of um, what they tend to prioritize, namely um, Homeland Security, law enforcement, veterans, um, etc. So, 
we don't know what our allocation is for the labor HHS education bill in part because they don't want us to know, um, in part because right now they don't really know. Um, and so it's hard to determine kind of where we're going to end up. Um, for me, I'm taking it as at least in part a good sign in that I have not seen any of the Democrats on the Appropriations Committee sort of go rogue and make a big stink about they don't like the number, okay. um, as they did in the last budget deal where really labor HHS education was shortchanged big time. Yeah. Um, so the fact that we haven't seen, you know, the ranking members on those um, appropriations subcommittees going out and making a big stink about this, this um, allocation is too low, I think is a good sign um, because that's what happened last time. Um, that said, we're seeing many reports in the news about um, a debate on whether or not we should be using a budget gimmick that has been used for many, many years that has helped kind of pad the amount of funding that's available principally within the labor HHS bill, but also in other bills. Um, and that's called Changes in Mandatory Program Savings or CHIMPS. Okay. Um, and these are not the kind that you know we use in science and experiments. These are a budgetary term. Okay. Um, and we like CHIMPS because CHIMPS have allowed appropriators, really in this time of austerity, um, to have a little more wiggle room and flexibility to, to give $2 billion increases to the National Institutes of Health within an otherwise pretty austere budgetary environment. And so the debate now is um, Republicans saying, you know, we've we just got all this new money through this budget deal. We should use that money to essentially buy out the chimps. Um, stop using chimps, get this gimmick off the table. Let's use that money to essentially fund things that have all, already been funded for years under this budgetary gimmick. Okay. Um, Democrats are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That wasn't part of the deal. You know, our working assumption in this budget deal that was that the new money that is being provided through the Bipartisan Budget Act is going to be additive. We're new not, money, right. yeah, we're yeah. not just going to level the playing field. We want to keep the playing field where it is and raise it above that. Um, they're getting closer to an agreement. We're now in a position where I think Republicans have agreed, okay, you know, we can't buy out the 17 billion with a B dollars worth of budgetary gimmicks we've been using to fund non-defense programs, most of them in the labor HHS bill. Um, how about we buy out $14 billion worth? Um, Democrats are still holding firm and saying, no, no, no. Um, we expect to use all the available champs, the $17 billion. Um, and so basically we're arguing over $3 billion right now. Now, $3 billion could be an NIH increase. Um, so this is very real, even though the money isn't really real because um, I should have explained what chimps are, but it's basically you plan to spend money on the, in mandatory programs, like for example, the children's health insurance program. Um, and you budget for that in the year before, you end up not spending that money you thought you were going to spend, and sure. ta-da, we have savings. Yeah, we have yeah. okay. <laughs> and so now we apply that extra money to um, the labor HHS bill uh, to so, give us a little more wiggle room. You know, so under chips give you the authority to spend that money 
kind of outside of where it was originally intended. Correct. So, so we planned to spend this money. We didn't spend it on what we thought we were going to spend it, but now we're going to spend it on something else. So that's, that's different from, like, say, like, you or I who might have, like, a health savings plan Correct. out of our own thing. If we don't spend that money, we lose it, right? Correct. Like the money that goes into that. That's why people buy, like, stockpile Tylenol at the end of the year, right? Because they have, you know, $100 <laughs> left, and so they need to use it up. Exactly, um, yeah. The government with the chimps has the ability to kind of throw the money in a different place and right. use it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they plan to use it. They didn't use it. Um, and Republicans are saying that it should be like your HSA. It should be use or lose. Okay. You should use lose that money because it's not real money. Um, it it's not actually savings, right? Right, like, right. Okay. Not spending is not necessarily savings um it is to me yeah my house it is it is yeah and so it's um in many ways it's a philosophical discussion um but has very very real implications and consequences and one of those consequences is the other subcommittees have gotten their allocations of the new money out of the bipartisan budget act um they've already started moving forward several bills are actually done um, we're coming up on this March 23rd de- deadline. And so as you, for the continuing resolution. And so if you work backwards, you know, there had been talk, we want to bring spending legislation to the floor of the house next week by yeah. March 14th. If we're going to play this out, like, and we're going to follow a process, and we're going to follow some semblance of what we call regular order, right? We're going to give people three days to review the bill. We're going to bring it up on the floor, then it's going to go to the Senate, and they're going to be deliberative, and we're going to do this in an orderly fashion and not have the shutdown clocks pop up on, you know, CNN and Fox News. Um, That's not really going to happen, right? Um, well, I, are we going to have a government shutdown? No. No, I don't I, mean a shutdown, but I mean, yeah. but the, this Congress is motivated by, uh, by panic and, and procrastination. Correct. Right? I mean, they won't. As much as we would like them to, isn't it likely that we're not going to be doing anything until that shutdown clock is No, I think it's down. probable at this point we're going to be coming up right against yeah. the wire again. My fear is, and this is where I think anyone who advocates for health funding should be afraid, is that between the CHAMPS conversation, between the conversation around do we or do we not fund family planning, um... Do we or do we not fund now gun violence research? Because this is now a thing. That's in the CDC, which which is in the CDC, or could be NIH. I mean, could be anywhere. Um, There is a quote-unquote policy rider called the Dickey Amendment that has prohibited the use of research to advocate for gun control. That has largely been interpreted as a ban on any federal funding for gun control research, which is not necessarily true. And the new secretary has said that's not true. Um, but this becomes a symbolic argument. You sure. know, the, the Dickey Amendment has kind of become this political hot potato where you know Democrats are taking this as a symbol of the lack of progress on this issue. You know, are they willing to stonewall on an appropriations bill for labor HHS, for example, because it includes the D- Dickey Amendment? Are they willing to withhold their votes in the Senate on an appropriations bill um, for health funding because it doesn't include funding for Title X family planning or it puts restrictions on Title X. This is where we get into dangerous territory because I think lawmakers are clearly over it. They want this to be done. Um, they, 
are making progress on other appropriations bills. And so now you get into the territory of what we call the cromnibus. So you have a potential omnibus final spending legislation for all the other appropriations subcommittees and their agencies and programs. And Labor HHS Education ends up on a basically a year-long continuing re- resolution. Um, that for us, I know Ben, you and I work so hard on NDD United to raise those spending caps to have this end after all that work, after you know a bipartisan budget act that provided more new money for non-defense discretionary programs since the stimulus, and to end up after all that on a CR for the remainder of fiscal year 2018 would just be like emotionally crushing. Right, right. <laughs> it, for considering we we live in the health space for everybody except for the health community. Yeah, we'd be, essentially be work. left behind. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, when really it was the health community and you know the medical research community that helped carry this effort, um, right? And then to get nothing would be, right? Kind of heart wrenching. What um, so for the NIH in particular, who is um, a darling mm-hmm. of Congress these days, mm-hmm. particularly and, and in this bill, um, do you think it's a possibility that there could be? Um, a, a CR for this bill with some kind of anomaly or some kind of increase, you know, the NIH still getting some of the increase that it seems like everybody wants to give it. Yeah. Right? Because this is one of those things where it's like, I think they people clearly want to give this money, give the increase in funding to the NIH, mm-hmm. even if they can't. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. And that's happened before. Mm-hmm. So um, an anomaly for your listeners' benefit is a, essentially a, um, I don't want to call it an earmark, but it's, you know, we're going to hold everything else the same on a CR, and we're going to make some tweaks around the edges. Um, and that could either be more funding or could actually be eliminating funding in some cases. You know, there are some programs that just don't need to exist anymore. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to continue funding them under, you know, st- you know, simply carrying over fund is in a continuing resolution. So an anomaly yeah. can be either an, a plus up or a plus down or an elimination. Um, in fact, in the past, when we have had, um, I think one of the most recent, call them cromnibus, which is a hybrid CR omnibus, where we had labor HHS on a CR for um, the remainder of the year and an omnibus for everything else. There was a, um, a, a small anomaly, I think, of a I say small, $50 million for the National Institutes of Health. Um, so I think that's very likely. And what makes that likely is that, you know, while not in the Bipartisan Budget Act per se, because that was not an appropriations bill, there was a sort of, as part of the negotiation and the deal, there was a commitment to provide at least an, another new billion dollars for right. the National Institutes of Health in both fiscal year 18 and, and fiscal, fiscal year 19. 19. And that's above the kind of mandated Current. cures money that right, is right. there as well. So, there's so that's, I think that's likely. So you could you could see a CR um, with an anomaly of that billion dollars that was sort of promised. And, you know, this is a note to self, sort of art of the deal, negotiations 101. A lot of the, the holdup we see now could have been avoided if part of that verbal agreement, handshake agreement, had been all the chimps are going to be on the table for yeah. use um, after the Bipartisan Budget Act. But nonetheless, um, but still, I mean, I think, 
you know, that anomaly could be more. But, you know, I think the challenge with anomalies is it tends to be the sort of the bare minimum required to get by. Because the more you change a CR or the more money you put on a CR, now it starts to not look like a CR anymore, right? right? At that point, why didn't you just do just a, do a bill? Anyway? You know, so you could potentially, and I think right now, it's completely realistic to assume if you look at the amount of money that's available out of the budget deal, if you look at what the Senate had proposed for NIH, you know, at least a $2 billion increase, hard to know, okay, in this budget deal, the billion that you're promised, is that above the $2 billion the Senate had proposed? So now we're talking $3 billion? Right. I mean, I think $3 billion is on the table. And that's, I mean, that's almost a 10% increase. That's a 10% increase, which is huge. Right. Um, so even under CR with an anomaly, you're losing money. I mean, right. it's you're not losing money because you never had it, but... You lost the potential for You've money. lost the potential for that new money. So, and yeah. you know, and a lot of the listeners for this podcast are, you know, NIH-funded and NIH-focused. So I think big picture, um, it's good... It's good for science to see the NIH get an increase like that. But I think mm-hmm. you and I, you know, mm-hmm. because of our work in NDD United and, and the Coalition for Health Funding, of which ASBMB is a member, it's recognizing that public health is a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so research is on one end of that. And then, you know, getting the end product of research being treatments and cures and, and those sorts of things yeah. on the other end, yeah. access to those things. Um, it's nice personally to see an increase to the NIH, but the the American public doesn't benefit as much if we're not fully funding fully funding the entire continuum from from research to you know from from bench to bedside. That's right? exactly right. You know, really, if the if the mission is to improve health, you need all these things, right? Like new discoveries are great, but if people can't access them because they their community health center is closed or they don't have qualified professional health professionals to deliver those discoveries, right. that's a problem. Or the FDA can't, um, you know, doesn't have the money to review the new things. That Quickly are through, get those right? or CDC discoveries isn't into market. To identify areas that need more attention or, yep. uh, yeah. Or prevent people from getting sick in the first place, right? So right. kind of in the absence of cures, we want to make sure um, we're keeping people as healthy as they can be, and we're preventing illness in the first place. Um, and sometimes that's with vaccines, but sometimes not. That's as when it comes to chronic disease, you know, the among the sort of top 10 leading causes of death, like nine of them are chronic disease um, or injury or things that are not infectious. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you would like to see kind of an investment in, in those areas as well. And so um, I think from a practical standpoint from us, I know um, you glossed over this, but you're also on the board of the Coalition for Health Funding, so you know very well, um, it, it it divides the community, right? You know, so when you begin to see NIH sort of continuing to be, you know, I love all my children in the public health service, but I call them the, the Marsha Brady of the public health service. It's like Marsha, 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 and CDC's the Jan, and they're like, Really? Like, you get a billion dollar or two billion dollar anomaly and we get nothing? Like, we're flat funded? I mean, it it makes it harder, you know, for us in the coalition as we try to keep the community together. It makes it harder. And, you know, I think as, as um, advocates, um, most folks care about a lot of different things within right. the budget. I know you all care about NSF. Um, I find very few 
advocates representing you know their constituencies who care about like only one agency right, right. um you know so this is all just again part of kind of the natural um environment of budgeting right there are winners and losers um and that's always going to be the case we would like to to the extent we can see as many winners um as possible i think particularly in the health space um yeah and so to 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 kind of tie a bow on things um congress has you know a little more than two weeks to figure this all out Mm -hmm. um if you put on your look in your crystal ball do you think we get this done what's your what's your projection so i'm really bad at projecting well i was good if i had stuck with my shutdown projections you were pretty accurate i would have but i got nervous and so i changed my mind about well now we're going to record so, so okay so now it's recorded we're hang it over um, your head after this i oh. here we'll make it easy yes or no questions yeah um mm-hmm. does the government shut down no does the nih see an increase yes is the increase more than a billion dollars? Mm, possibly. That wasn't yes or no. Does, <laughs> um, does the rest of the labor age bill end up cr Today? Uh, um, it's starting to feel that way. Yeah. yeah. That's why we're going to work really hard for the next weeks to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, you know, I think, so this is where... Um, the community comes in, uh, they need to hear from us that, no, that is not acceptable. Right. Doing a year-long CR for the largest of the bills, um, other than the Defense Department, uh, is not acceptable. Um, right. No, 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 no. you got to do your work. So Hashtag do your job. Right. Bill Belichick, like, let's get this done. So, um, so if you're listening to this, Maybe your maybe your grant gets funded, or you know, and that's great, and that's wonderful. And new grant gets funded, um, but the federal government touches you in more ways than just mm-hmm. your research, mm-hmm. right? And it's your neighbor, um, you know, it's mm-hmm. your uh, your elderly, it's your kids, grandparents, it's your yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more to it than this, and so mm-hmm. we want to see our advocates advocating for the NIH to get. It. I mean, we want to get ours to be sure, mm-hmm. um, but we'd like to see other people get theirs too. Yeah, for sure. Right. And and not only for FY 2018, you know, I think another concern about a year-long to continuing resolution for labor age is sort of the groundwork that that begins to lay for fiscal year 2019. Right. So we, we don't do well in election years. Um, and, and midterms tend to be not as contentious. But this year, you know, when you're looking at the House of Representatives being in play, margins narrowing in the Senate, potentially flipping, maybe. Um, we're all, you know, we're starting the year late. Yeah. We're already not in a good place. The train cars are kind of starting to pile up on one another. And, you know, I think the fear is if you don't do a bill for Labor HHS this year and you just do a CR in a year when, again, there's more money available than we've had in a really long time, and we still can't get it together, it now, the path of least resistance becomes, let's just do a CR for fiscal year 2019 and be done with it. And then you're two years in, right. And now we're like two years of lost opportunity. Yeah. And all the uncertainty that comes with it, and, 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 right? right? So, you know, for me, like the symbolic move to not do a bill on labor age in 15 in, in fiscal year 2018 lends itself to 
uh-oh, like we're going to be looking at a CR in fiscal year 2019. Right. Well, on that flowery note, we're going <laughs> to It's very uplifting. It, but uh, here's hoping um, here's hoping that your predictions are mostly wrong. wrong. Yes, I hope um, so. That's what we're hoping for. And thank you for your time and thank you for listening. This is Pipettes and Politics and we will be right back. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. I want to thank Emily for uh, her time in that interview. That was really interesting, good stuff. Uh, again, this is Ben Corb. I'm joined by Andre. Hey. And Daniel. How's it going? And what we wanted to do now, just kind of in wrapping up, we want to talk about um, advocacy opportunities for you, the listener, uh, this month. So what are we doing in the month of March for folks who want to get involved and have their voices heard? Fellas. All right, so this Friday, when this podcast is dropped, we will have hosted a webinar on op-eds, and so that's our topic grassroots advocacy um, initiative for this month is encouraging the listeners, encouraging our members, encouraging anybody who's interested in scientific advocacy to write in their local papers and uh, produce op-eds talking about the importance of scientific research, how it impacts their lives, et cetera. Um, You can view the recording of that webinar on ASBMB's YouTube page, as well as on policy.asbmb.org backslash webinars. Yeah, and you know, it's very, um, writing an op-ed is actually a really good way um, to advocate for um, science research, especially um, a lot of Congress people, um, their staffers comb through uh, local journals and newspapers for topical um, columns and articles. So. You know, you don't need to write to the Washington Post. You don't need to write to New York Times. You can just write to um, local newspapers, and that will ensure that your voice will still be heard. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Um, if you do decide to do it, or honestly, if you have questions on how to do it, you can go to the website, as Andre mentioned, and watch the, the webinar. You can email us, um, publicaffairs at asbmb.org is how you, you, know, you can get just an email to us that we'll be able to answer and help you out with questions. If you wrote an op-ed and you were published and wanted to send us a link, we would certainly love to have that. We could retweet it. We could put it on our blog. We can kind of help the spread the word around. I think that would be exciting. Um, and also, we are currently right now, uh, we got um, over 300 applicants for our Hill Day. Um, we're excited by that number. We're excited to see the interest in um, the amount of people that want to come to Washington and participate. We're reviewing those applications now. So if you're a listener and you put in your application, that's uh, you haven't heard from us yet because we're still reviewing things. Um, we will be making our decision over the course of the next few days. And um, by our next podcast in a couple of weeks, we are going to be excited to talk to you about other opportunities that are going to exist, uh, how you can from home participate in our Hill Day via a virtual Hill Day. Um, there are some exciting opportunities that are still coming up. So um, with that, I want to thank you all for your time. Um, Andre, anything? Anything extra? Anything to add? Extra, extra add? Sure. Do you want to thank people? What do you? Yeah, yeah. I'll thank people. I'll also like. I would also like to mention that the NSF is moving to close their international offices. Oh, good. Which I think is. <laughs> not good. <laughs> you seem pretty excited. Um, I'm not sure why they're moving. Their justification, generally, when something this big happens at a federal agency, the justification doesn't really speak to what the reason is. Um, they're closing all of their overseas offices and then they're going to move to a 
more targeted model where they send a couple of researchers out to specific countries in labs. How effective is this going to be? I don't know. It, it's been known that the China office, for instance, was very integral with helping the, helping the U.S. stay competitive with a lot of things. So they were able to keep an eye on what China was doing research-wise, be able to convey that very easily. I think the people who are working in the overseas offices now will be going to the State Department and working through the State Department now. Mm. So it's a... I think it's an interesting change. It's. I just wanted you to say thanks, listeners. Oh, you Thank you, Great Cloud. Um, that yeah. was one. Let's try this again. Hey, Andre, anything you want to say before we go away? No, thanks, listeners. Great, great, Daniel. <laughs> right, see you next time. Great, uh, and this has been. Thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, again, you can follow us on Twitter. You can reach us uh, hashtag Pipettes and Politics. Uh, this has been uh, our sixth episode of Pipettes and Politics, and we will catch you next time.